Well, I hope you are in Acts and uh, chapter 1. I'm not preaching from Acts chapter 1. I'm preaching from Acts chapter 2. But it's important that I give some background to what we are doing here by simply reading the first three verses of Acts chapter 1. The Bible reads there, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, you will remember that last week we were looking at uh, Ephesians and chapter 3, and basically I decided that we take a brief break away from Ephesians, and it is primarily because the, the book of Ephesians, as you go into chapter 4, centers a lot on believers. In other words, how should believers live in response to this glorious message that we surveyed in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3. So I felt that it was more appropriate that such a message or such messages should go into the evening service. However, the evening service at the moment, we are going through the major lessons from the minor prophets. And I didn't want to disturb that. The, the aeroplane is, is flying smoothly, and I think it's only right that we allow it to land at its own time. And so I thought that the best is to just hang on there and then do another series in the mornings. And uh, let's see, yes, uh, sermons that shook the world. Initially, I was thinking of calling it sermons that turned the world upside down based on the words of Acts chapter 17 and verse 6 when um, Paul and uh, Silas arrived in Thessalonica. They had been preaching together with the other apostles across what we normally refer to as the Middle East, which is Jerusalem into Antioch. They had gone into the Roman provinces of Asia and so on, preached over there, and then finally crossed over into Europe. And all those places that the apostles were preaching in were completely shaken. Nobody could overlook what was happening. So when they were now in Thessalonica and they were preaching there, the Jews who were there particularly raised up a rubble against them. They got all these guys that are, uh, you know, the ones that just are troublemakers. They, they pick them from the streets. 
and they caused uh, mayhem there. And when they were complaining, they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have arrived here. And that's my interest, really. It is to ask the question, how did these men do this? It wasn't through their miracles or their social responsibility programs. It wasn't through messages that were speaking about, you know, the equality that must be there between Jews and Gentiles, between rich and poor, between educated and uneducated, and so on. It wasn't about that. They, they had a, a one-stringed banjo that they were playing right across the known world up to that point in Thessalonica and indeed even beyond. And it was the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Lord Jesus crucified, buried, raised from the dead. That was their message. And that message turned the world upside down. Well, where we are beginning is the sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost. And that is found in chapter 2. But just bear in mind that the book of Acts was written as a kind of bridge between the Gospels and the epistles that were written by the apostles. So right in between, you have the Acts of the Apostles. It was written by a physician called Luke, and we often joke about him as Dr. Luke. And basically, what he did was to, first of all, listen to various accounts related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being a physician, he brought to play the training that he had to analyze detail. And with that, he was able to pin down what we call the gospel according to Luke. But he didn't end there. He felt that there was still need to leave a, a detailed account as well of the phenomena that had transformed the known world in those days. A few individuals who began their ministry fearful, trembling, tucked away in a little room somewhere, afraid of the Jews, who then came out of that place and turned the world upside down. So he did exactly the same thing. That's why he says that, that uh, this is what I have done. He says, in, this, in the first book I dealt with all this had done until the day was taken up and so forth. And then he says that what he has now done is basically 
picked it up from there in order for us to see what the apostles went on to do um, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So it is that that we are now beginning to, to look at. And what basically happened, if we can quickly look at the first chapter, was that these brethren were gathered in a room. They chose the person who was going to take over from Judas, and uh, that was Matthias, who was finally chosen. And while they were together praying, we are told in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When that happened, there was confusion in Jerusalem. Confusion. And that became the occasion on which this sermon was preached. The very first sermon that shook the world out of its slumber, shook the Jewish world especially on this occasion. And this is what we read in verse 5 downwards. Verse 5 downwards. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So you can imagine, it was a crowd of thousands. And we are told they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now let me quickly explain. You see, what had happened, for those of you who are there in the evening services, you will appreciate this, that the people of Israel were taken into captivity. First of all, the ten tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then where we are right now, the Babylonians are about to come to also take the two remaining tribes into captivity. Well, after that, a few came back to the Promised Land but many of them still remained in the far country. The Medes and the Persians came as a kingdom. The, the Greek Empire came also as a major kingdom. The Roman Empire also came as a major kingdom. And, and, and the Jews were still scattered in the known world. But what used to happen is that once a year, many of them used to travel back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And because they had been scattered all over the world, they had developed the languages where they were coming from. Those are the languages they were now speaking. Remember, 
This is not a, a phenomenon that happened within 10 years. It was a phenomenon that had happened now for about 400 years and even more. So it was generation after generation after generation. So those with the languages that they were speaking apart from Hebrew. So when they would come back into Jerusalem, they were speaking the language they were coming from. So listen to this. Verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, Jews from the land of Galilee. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Pathians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that is those that were converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, saying, said they are filled with new wine. This was the occasion. It was nine in the morning. And the conclusion was they must be drunk. Well, the Bible tells us here that Peter stood up. And when he stood up, he wanted to correct their thinking. And in correcting their thinking, he did not add his own opinion to theirs. He didn't do that. Rather, he went to the scriptures. He anchored his answer in the scriptures. I want us to see this from verse 14 down to verse 21. From verse 14 down to verse 21. Acts and chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. <clears throat> That's preaching in those days. Lifted up his voice. No microphone, no peer system. And addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, 9 a.m. If it was in Zambia, people are still drunk at 9 a.m., but this was in uh, Jerusalem, okay, Judea. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. We've already seen this in our evening services. Verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, that is, 
the last days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All that Peter is doing here is saying that the last days have come. What you are seeing here is the announcement of what Joel prophesied so long ago. The last days are here. And the last days begin with the first coming of Christ, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God is given as he has been given now. The last days end with the second coming of Christ, the great and magnificent day. In between, you have the period of grace. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Now for you and me, listening to those words, we've been so used to it because we live literally in that same period. But you have to understand that the people to whom Joel was speaking, that word everyone, which is all men, meant Jew and Gentile. And for the Jews, that was out of the question altogether. Salvation belonged to the Jews. But with the day that was being promised, the day that was coming, this opening up, the day of grace was going to be open to you Gentiles, to you Bembas, to you Tumbukas, to you Lozis and Tongas and so on. The door has been opened wide so that you too can now simply call on Jesus and you will be saved. That's what Joel said, and that's what Peter was now quoting. And Peter is saying, this is the day. It has now come to pass. It has begun. The day of grace where God's purpose is now to bring in the rest of humanity. The rest of humanity. That's where Peter began his sermon. A shocking revelation to the thousands of individuals that were now listening to him. It was not a mere philosophy. Something has happened 
that was totally undeniable. Individuals who had never learned these languages that these people had learned because they lived out there around the world. These people, Galileans, were now speaking all these languages. All of them. How do you deny that something extraordinary has happened here? I want to assure you that these people are not going No, 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 no. It was proper Tumbuka, Lozi, kind of languages. You could understand what they were saying because that was the language you had learned where you were coming from and you were now hearing these people and saying, how on earth is this happening? And all Peter did, if we could imagine it was a book in those days, but it was a scroll which he had memorized, was to simply say, here, it was spoken, it was written down, and that's what is now being fulfilled. You see, the Christian faith, brethren, hangs on what God has revealed, what God has caused to have written down, what God has preserved as his written word, what God now brings to fruition across history. That's the Christian faith. It's not based on just some individual sitting on an anthill and then beginning to, 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 to imagine that he's hearing things and then we must now simply believe what he says he was hearing. No. It is something you can go back, as was the case here, so many hundreds of years and still be able to say, it has been fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And it's done so accurately. Well, let's go on. Because when the Apostle Peter had quoted from the prophet Joel, he took a few steps backwards to show where all this was coming from. And he was basically saying, it is coming from the life death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the way he puts it in verse 22 to verse 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The point that he was making there is that you all know 
What has happened to this man, Jesus? First of all, he, he, he reached the height of being famous by the good things that he had done, his good works, the miracles that he had done. He, he, he fed thousands of people on a few pieces of bread and fish. He, he, he healed so many individuals who were sick, some of them with very visible leprosy, others with lame hands and, and legs, and, and others who were even dead. He raised them from the dead. Word spread all over the place. You all heard about this Jesus. And yet his fame was not just from these miracles, signs, and wonders, but it was also from the way in which he was killed. The Jewish leaders handing him over to the Gentiles who finally crucified him. And then he says, but that was no accident. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's what God had intended all along should happen. That this Jesus would die in the place of sinners. And then he was to rise from the dead. And that's what he goes on to deal with there in verse 25 as he goes now to the Psalms, and more specifically, Psalm 16, verse 8 to verse 11, up to the end of that Psalm from verse 8. This is the quotation. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. All that he is doing there is going back. Remember like he did earlier? To show that this is fulfilled, rather this is fulfilling what was said by the prophet, is also saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ was also according to plan. It was prophesied. So when David was writing these things about himself, he was actually a shadow of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Look at the way he argues out his point there in uh, verse, 29, verse 29. That this cannot be about David himself. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So obviously, when he was speaking about his resurrection, he must not have been speaking about his resurrection. 
Because up to today, we have his tomb. His bones are there. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, what an assertion now. He has arrived at his point. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. What a powerful assertion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has now taken place and we who are here actually saw him alive after you had put him to death. Where is that leading us to? The final point. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. In other words, he wasn't just raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven and God gave him the seat that is above every seat, every power, every name that can ever be named. He put him there at his right hand. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Wow! That's a knockout punch. That that same Bible that you have been reading, the Scriptures, that make up the, the readings in the temple and also in the synagogues. You are familiar with them from where you are coming from, across the known world. Those scriptures explain this day. What you are watching right now, the phenomena that you are watching, and it's that same Jesus who performed all those miracles, whom you killed, who rose from the dead, who's now ascended to heaven. He has sent the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that has been promised again and again and again in the Scriptures, has now come. That's what you are seeing here. It is proof, living proof, that Jesus is now on the throne. The Jesus you crucified is now seated 
on the throne of the entire universe. And just to sink it in, he quotes once more from the Psalms. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, all these sinners, to be your footstool. In other words, you will crush them as King Jesus. And hence, Peter ends. You can imagine the full decibel of his voice at its loudest because he wants these people to know what has just happened. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, friends, when these guys rushed in to see this phenomena, the last thought that would have been on their minds was that they were in trouble. That's not what was playing on their minds. It was just curiosity. Let's just go and see what has happened here. Come on, guys, let's go, let's go. But upon getting there, they discover that the very person they got rid of has simply gone out through one door and returned through the other as the promised king. The humiliated Jesus is now the exalted Christ. that Jesus is now both Lord and Messiah, the promised Christ. It's him and is reigning now. And as long as you are on the wrong side of this Jesus, you must perish for all eternity. For all eternity. There's no escaping him. Never. Because he is now king of kings and lord of lords. That what matters above everything else in life, above everything else, is on which side of this Jesus are you? His enemy or his friend? Everything else pales into utter insignificance. You can be sure that that was now the thought, the disturbing thought that was on the minds of these individuals. And alas, they knew 
that as it is right now, we are on the wrong side. Hence, it demanded a response. The impact of this sermon was obvious. It resulted in conviction. It resulted in conversion. It resulted in baptisms. It resulted in church membership. It resulted in all of this. This one sermon. It shook thousands of people as they were listening. Listen to this. Verse 37. First of all, conviction. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And friends, I'd like to say that this is the effect that the gospel ought to have on each one of us if we are going to go from death to life, from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God. There must be that time when you realize I am on the wrong side of God. It shakes you to the very core of your being that I am in serious trouble. I need to do something about this. And so they cried, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? We are in trouble. Any way in which we can get out of this trouble, any way, please, that we can do what they call today damage control. Damage control. Peter responds and says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And remember, it is everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The day of grace has come. So anybody in any part of the world who hears this message and believes it and turns from his sins will be saved. And friends, that was a major turning point to these people. Because up to this point, the thinking was, as long as I've been born from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if I can mention one of the 12 tribes of Israel and say that that's my line, then I'm on the good side of God. Today we'll be talking in terms of, you know, I was born in a Christian family, you know, I, I, I was baptized and I, uh, I'm a member of a church and, and putting all those credentials. Peter was saying here, throw all that away. Throw that away. It is believing this message, believing in this Savior, and turning away 
from your sin. Let me ask, have you done that yet? Have you? Have you turned away from everything you know to be sinful and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation? Have you done that? It's amazing how many people listen to what I've just asked and it goes in through one ear and out through the other. Because they somehow still want to hang on to, you know, I went to a Christian school. We used to say prayers. Look at the text, my friend. Look at the text. It is repentance. It is trusting in Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ. That's how you get forgiveness of sins. Have you done that yet? Well, if you have, there are two things you need to do as evidence. Two things. One is to be baptized, and the second is to join a local church. That's what we read here. These brethren ended up doing. We read in verse 40 and verse 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So he, he, he continued applying this message and, and, and challenging their hearts and, 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 and refusing to end without a verdict. These people needed to, to respond. Born. This is not the kind of message you just say, uh, you know, Pastor, uh, very nice sermon, very nice sermon. And then you just go to live the way you, you want to live. No, no, no. You, you must respond. And that's what he was doing here. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The God who has given us a Savior, who's died on the cross, has raised him to be Lord, and he's going to come and put an end to all sinners. Don't belong to them. Flee from the coming wrath that you may be saved. And this is what happened. So those who received his word were baptized. That's a sign that we now belong to Jesus. They were baptized. But belonging to Jesus alone is not enough. You must belong to Jesus' people. And so we are told, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people realized they were in trouble. Pray to Jesus to have their sins forgiven based on the fact that he died in their place and came out of the woodworks and said, I've repented. I've believed. I want to be baptized. Jerusalem was never the same 
again after that one sermon. Where does it find you today? And where does it leave you? Can you honestly say that this Jesus, who is now both Lord and Christ, is indeed both Lord and Messiah of your life? Can you say that today? If not, then I plead with you. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Amen.